Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance. If you're not pumped, if you're not alive after that, get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. I think you had to be on a lot of coke for this to really work. <laughs> it's not working for me anymore. No. <laughs> oh, rest in peace, Mr. Eddie Van Halen. <clears throat> As we were listening, I thought of um, in uh, The Wedding Singer when Adam Sandler gets cheated on or whatever, and then he... Uh, mm-hmm. He breaks up with his girlfriend, and then he gets drunk, and she like seduces him, and then he wakes up the next morning, and she's in bed with him. And he's like, yeah. he's like, take off my Van Halen shirt right now before you jinx <laughs> the band, and they break up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is extra funny because of like back then Adam Sandler was, um, I think what the real problem with his movies, as I'm thinking about it, is. That was like the last moment or almost the last moment where he was the butt of the jokes. Um, Mm -hmm. And then quickly thereafter, definitely after Big Daddy, then it was just all this like family bullshit. Um, Yeah. And he was the fucking good guy, more or less all the time, which doesn't Mm -hmm. work. Like he's supposed to be the fucking heel. Like that's funny. Yeah. Um, So it's funny that like. Not that Sandler doesn't unironically love, like, Van Halen and, like, uh, all of that other, like, 80s rock shit, but mm-hmm. um, he's, it's definitely, like, it's it's making fun of him at the level of, like, he's so invested as that character in, Eddie, in Van Halen not breaking up. Um, right. That's pretty fucking good. Yeah. Well, and they kind of, I don't know how you define breakup. They didn't. Uh, the irony is they just got rid of the singer. Right. right yeah, I suppose. So, uh, and so I don't know if that's kind of the, the meta joke right there too, or not in that line, but 
I think so. I mean, yeah, f- for for his dollar, if I remember correctly, yeah. that seems well. And it's you know, location. It's uh obviously sacrilegious to say, but I I didn't have a problem with Sammy Hagar era Van Halen. I mean, I didn't no. like any of it that much, but it was same as the rest. Yeah, and okay I think way. I didn't. I probably wasn't even aware of much, you know, when David Lee Roth was a lead singer. I don't remember when that change happened, but so I'm the same way. My problem with Sammy Hagar is not his fault. Um, We had this high school math teacher who um, he's also the basketball coach, which so that shows you how, you know, invested in teaching he was, but I had him like more than once and I mean, he's fine. He he let us do whatever the fuck we want mostly, but <clears throat> there's this one, he had this word problem and the, it, it was, so he's like, uh, he's, he's doing the word problem and then like he gets to the end of it and it's about driving and he's like, see, so you can't drive 55. <laughs> And of course, this is in like 1998. Like no one get, no one knows what the fuck he's talking about. And he's like, "Come on, guys, Sammy Hagar." And then there's like, it's like the the, the, the music people in that class were like me and like this other like goth kid and stuff, and we're both just like, mm-hmm. Jesus fucking Christ. Um, and then to make matters worse, then <clears throat> the next year I was in a, the next math class, but I dropped out because the teacher was sort of. She's just sort of a Nazi about it. Like I do really, I do well on the test, but if I didn't do the homework on time, she'd try to like fail me or something. Um, so I, I dropped it and then I took that class next year with him again. And so he does the same fucking joke. Of course, it just flat as fuck. And he looks at me and he's like, right once. And it's like, ah, oh, fucking shit. God damn it. So that's my negative association with Sam. <laughs> I was, I was only going to say, I looked at the, uh, I'd forgotten the the year that record came out, and the, you know the the video. Whatever it said, nineteen ninety one, which is astounding to me uh, that that's you know that's Nevermind or whatever. Yeah, slint. I mean, all that stuff was happening in rock, mm. such that that record was already obsolete the second it dropped. Oh yeah, right? the one we're um, listening to. You mean correct? Yeah. yeah, I mean for it still you know gets gets the. You know the fans up at the hockey game or something, they get jazzed. But um, right. it was just obsolete the second it came out. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, to that end, Foo Fighters came after Nirvana. Mm-hmm. They were mm-hmm. pre-obsolete, so that's that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I go ahead. No, I'm just gonna say I used to play with some guys before my other band days, the one you're familiar with, mm-hmm. um, and they wanted to do covers, and so I spent one practice practicing a Foo Fighters song and like a Green Day song seven to 10 times straight. And I just got, so I just hated it and not to, you know, pat myself on the back, but just to say that's my negative association (laughs) with that band is if I needed any more, but I just can't, I can't even listen to it anymore. So So you were, you didn't want to get laid. That's what you're saying. Um, Uh, Yes. Catholic self-hating. I mean, I don't hate Foo Fighters. Like, I'm being uncharitable just because it's annoying. Like, Dave Grohl's annoying. But um, mm-hmm. I, I I met someone, like a younger person. Like, I don't know. She's probably like 22 now or something. She unironically. She's like a punk person. She likes, like, good shit, like Sleater Kinney and stuff. But she unironically mm-hmm. has, like, a Foo Fighters tattoo. Like, it's. Wow. 
And I'm think I'm like wow. sitting there trying, like I'm I don't know how to say, you know, I don't know how to not make fun of her. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't say anything. But it's like, it was shocking that that in wow. in in the Zoomer mind, to the degree that indie rock people exist at all, um, yeah. they there those things are equivalent. Because like in the day, like that was. Foo Fighters were just sort of this hangover from Nirvana in a really like disappointing way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you know, basically kind of almost pop punk type stuff, which yeah. compared to Nirvana is obviously not as incendiary at all. It's not the same register, but yeah, that still shocks me. It's like, uh, I don't know. It, you know, I, I understand people like falsely, um, like liking minor threat on principle, even though like they probably don't like minor threat. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really like the music mm-hmm. or whatever, but, mm-hmm. um, but Foo it's Fighters, a lot to take. It, sure. But Foo Fighters, I mean, my God, like <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> on that note, in terms of speaking of uh, feeling shocked, I think what we were discussing off mic before the show here was, you know, what should we discuss? And part of it was the fact that since we last recorded, it literally feels like uh, this is a different world now. Like time sped up. And what was the term you used? We've been lapped or something. Yeah. It's like reality's lapping us. Yeah. Everything that's happened, uh, you know, our dear leader has the COVID uh, Supreme Court. I mean, just everything. And we haven't had a chance to chat about it. No. Mm. <clears throat> Uh, Supreme Court. You mean the nomination? Yeah, the nomination in particular with uh, the handmaid or whatever she is. And it got like um, stopped because, or it got suspended because two GOP senators got COVID. So they that's right. They're yeah. not sure they could pass the justice in time. <laughs> that's before right. Before the election wow. or whenever they're trying to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, it's it's hard to know what to say anymore. Like, I mean, it's it's. I didn't really get any pleasure out of Trump having COVID. It mostly scared me because if he were to die, well, first I was like, how did Biden not? I thought Biden would get it too, and if that happened, yeah, then there's probably wouldn't even. I mean, what do you do? You do you run Mike Pence versus Kamala Harris? Or in technical, you know, if the dem- not that the Democratic Party is required to follow their own rules, but does Bernie become the nominee, and then he's not on the ballots anywhere? Like, they wouldn't. They might have to suspend the election if that were to happen. Um, yeah. Trump appears to be on the mend, but apparently, the worst. Uh, this is just what Matt said on Chapo that. Um the worst time is 10 days into it. So it's hard. Mm -hmm. We don't know real. I I mean, it's been like, when did Trump get COVID on my birthday? The second. So it's, what is it? The seventh. So he's got a few more days for sure. Well, at least a couple more days until he's at the worst part of it. Um, right. So who fucking knows? Well, happy birthday, by the way. Um, but we'd also, we watched that uh, video of him leaving the hospital, getting out of the helicopter, you know, sh- schlepping up the up the <laughs> stairs of the White House, and he he was he was not looking like he was uh, unwinded at all. I mean, he was looking like that was tough. Yeah, he was really keeping it together for the camera. Yeah, I uh, I don't know what 
it's just so baffling, like the whole thing. Not not like he got COVID and then spread it to everybody. Mm. And apparently they knew that he had it before the debate. Um, yeah. Which makes sense because he looked a little bit. He, he, he was off his game just slightly relative to what I thought I was going to see. Um, I mean, he got some nice shots in there for sure. I, I would say he won the debate insofar as there's a winner, but um, yeah, I don't know. There's <laughs> just fucking, there's no pushback from the left. Like everybody's just like thoughts and prayers. And it's like, you know, as people are pointing out to Rachel, like about Rachel Maddow wishing him well and all this, it's like, didn't you say he's like a Russian agent? He's trying to destroy democracy. And then like, People are calling them Nazis and shit, and then they're, like, saying they don't wish harm on anyone. Like, I don't wish harm on them only because of what I said. Like, it's it, it would create more political chaos, way way mm. beyond what we're seeing now, if Trump died from this thing. Um, I think more than people even realize. Like, yeah, probably. This would really set off the, the Q people, and the militia people would see it as a huge opportunity. Um so, yeah, it's like I I just don't even know what to fucking say. Like, again, like we were talking off mic, and I didn't take pleasure in anybody getting it, even Kellyanne Conway. And maybe that's just because I don't really take these people seriously. But what uh, when Chris Christie got it, that was pretty satisfying. And the uh, Stephen Miller, that's pretty great. But you know, unless Jared Kushner gets it, like I don't really, I don't have any ill will toward. Eric Trump. Um, he's just an honest, like, cokehead or whatever. <laughs> Don Jr., I mean, that'd be pretty good. I'll take that. Um, I certainly don't want Ivanka to get it. That would be horrifying. I love Ivanka Trump. She's fucking awesome. She's, I, as yeah. we discussed on the show, allegedly she was the White House leaker uh, mm -hmm. two or three years ago. So, mm -hmm. can't disagree. <sighs> But yeah, I, there wasn't. I thought there was some rumors she was she was supposed to be. Uh, Trump wanted her to be his running mate. He wanted her for vice president back in 2016, and they probably would have worked it. better. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. But that was just because he needed the religious right. Right. Um, well, one thing that ha uh, okay, so I watched this documentary. There's been a few documentaries about social media and Google in the last few years. Well, you know, since the election, primarily. This one was like extra crazy. So it was called people you may know or something like that. And it's about at first, it seems like they're just going to talk about Cambridge Analytica um, because it's this guy who like testified. He's like an American, but he's worked in European political circles for a long time. And he, um, he said that, or, or, so that was, that was significant because that was the first time there was any sort of serious inquiry about Cambridge Analytica globally in the West and publicly. Um, but he like sort of started tracking down like this broader network of influence and he started finding connections to all these like Christian tech groups and like concerns. And they were like, long story short, these people were using big data to um, sort of fold people into the religious right all over America wow. with micro-targeting. So, like, the same way they got people to vote for Trump or to at least not vote for Hillary in 2016, um, 
they they target if people are like if they've just gotten divorced or if they seem like they're a drug addict or if they think that they're they lost their job and they build out these networks of um contacts and all these data points so the big scoop with cambridge analytica was they had supposedly 5000 data points on every american of voting age um before the election and so they could micro target ads to influence what they did slowly over time in a, in subtle ways just like on facebook and shit well um these christian groups are doing the exact same thing but they have like this they're connected with these broader um policy interests where like you know people like mike pence and i can't remember the name of the the group in their conference that are involved but i mean it's just all these right-wing heavy hitters and their goal is this woman wrote a book about it and their goal is to literally take over all the state legislatures and do a constitutional convention and that's why they're all they're, the and their other big thing is education and the judges so that's why trump like the deal Trump made with them was you get basically to pick who the judge, judge federal judges are, and then um, we get your evangelical votes. So, like, the quote-unquote hypocrisy of um, Trump being whatever, like a decadent, cosmopolitan, New York, like... Divorcee. Piece of shit, whatever, whatever they're supposed to be against, he's giving them everything they want, so of course they're aligned. Um and it was pretty fucking scary because, like, basically what they're actively trying to do is sounds like a conspiracy theory, but but they're doing it. I mean, it's it's all it's basically it's more or less admitted uh, publicly, but the reporting on it is it's like seemingly vetted and stuff. And and I mean, a lot of the church people they would talk to, like the pastors and stuff, they would openly admit that they're using data to manipulate people to try and get them into the church. Um, and so that's like, that's like the register of influence that they're deploying across all these fields. And then it it amounts to this massive political lever that has like basically nothing to do with what the population wants because they're even using even the ways that they target people for, um, indoctrination into the churches it's like cult shit where they first they're just nice to them and they give them a sense of community and they just listen to their problems and stuff it's only later that they explain that well if you love jesus then you have to hate abortion and gay marriage and all this stuff Um, they don't hit them with that up front they wait till it's like scientology allegedly or whatever you know the the thetans and stuff they don't start talking about aliens and and however else (laughs) Scientology is so convoluted, I can't even make heads or tails of it, but I'm talking based on leaked documents, but allegedly, allegedly this is all parody satire, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Not get sued, but um, it's the same sort of tactics more or less, but with a digital um, assist from, you know, these algorithms and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I talked at length like a year or two ago on the show about like how like they've they've studied 
just by how you order Google search results. You don't even have to change the search results. It's just how you order them can swing entire elections. Um, oh. And <clears throat> there's much more, it gets much more refined than that, obviously with Facebook targeted ads and stuff. But um, these people are not fucking around and mm -hmm. the left has no, you know, like answer to this. Cause they're the paradox being that the left is sort of stone age technologically um and the right is like up to up to date you know the right's forward looking and the left isn't the left is relying on this faith in community organizing and just like old school just dead bullshit as far as tactics and strategy um and i'm not really sure why i mean i assume it's because what to to the degree that there's money on the left it's all shit that's paid to lose like it's not it's not a serious opposition um, but that's what we're, you know, that's what we're up against. And that's the, that can account for why we have such reactionary legislatures and, uh, yeah. Senate and Congress for the most part, um, in an era when people's opinion and what they want when they're asked is like diametrically opposed to what we get. Yeah. Well, and to your point too, bringing it all together, I mean, at the, at the federal level or the level of judgeships at the federal, but maybe state courts too. And that's, um, again, since we last spoke, this, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, nominee uh, for Supreme Court, it's, you know, there's reporting on her being a member of this group, people of praise out of South Bend, Indiana. She was called a handmaid, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, I mean, you know, it's Mike Pence's territory, of course. And it's all, I mean, it just seems to be coming, Again, it sounds conspiratorial. Oh, they're all in this together, but it, I mean, the dots <laughs> seem to connect in all these interesting and horrifying ways. I haven't seen that film, but I, I just wouldn't be shocked. Right. Um, if there's a connection. Yeah, and it's all verified. Mm. Like, this isn't like Q mm. shit. This is like real reporting and stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think we're, the left is going to have to, well, Okay, the the problem with what I was about to say is a precondition is if the left wants to win, well, the left doesn't want to win, so you know right. that's not true. But if if we fantasize that they do, um, we're probably gonna have to completely reject uh, all of our assumptions about what constitutes, you know, organizing and like re rework our ide our ideological assumptions about how to do anything um mm -hmm. and that's not an easy task because people are you know pot committed to being uh self-righteous that seems to be the the primary discourse you know like the most yeah. it, it gets annoying to talk about what happens online because obviously the 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 impact is is minimal at some level but at, on the other hand like those are the people who are the most active in determining what constitutes resistance and activism. And then people plug into what the left creates or doesn't create. And then we all pay for it one way or another. Um, and so unfortunately it is a domain that's required to, it, it's, it's worthy of criticism, not because it's content is good or, or whatever, but precisely because it's so bad generally that it, it doesn't work as a discourse, but it's the only thing that there is. And so we're sort of, stuck dealing with that um and there's no easy path out of that because again people are 
it's like, I mean, it is like LARPing, but it's also like, it's like a cocoon. Like if you wrap yourself in radical ideology and then you feel better about not about being so impotent and ineffectual, um, as an individual, but that's always going to be the case. Like the, the left project has always, always has to be always already, um, a collective project, but we haven't squared the circle. Like Adam Curtis talks about like individualism's here to stay. So we have to figure out how to get people to participate in, uh, politics as individuals in a way that benefits the collective. Like they have to be solicited and as individuals. So like, Althusser's uh, conception of, you know, interpolation being interpolated as an ideological subject, um, you know, as an individual, we have to sort of, at this point, I think, accept that as a just the the basic starting, the the framework that we're working from. And the goal should be to undermine that as a to break the back of that ideological trap, but we have to, like I would keep saying from the situation is revolutionaries need to keep abreast of reality. We have to start that from where we are, not where we hope that we wish that we would be. Um, which is just to say, like, if you're trying to solicit participation or collective struggle or solidarity from people by yelling at them about abolishing the, the, you know, labor theory of value or the value form. It's like, okay, well, that's all well and good. But at this point, that's just sort of bourgeois nonsense. Um, and like, you know, I'm in this Fanon reading group and he's, he's said something interesting about how he was talking about leaders and how leaders should never, basically they should never be trusted or relied upon. They should only just express the will of the people and, that like political education isn't about listening to speeches and sort of being beaten over the head with ideology. Um, it should be like helping people understand how they can, you know, in, in his context, destroy colonialism together um, and helping them see how to figure that out. Basically I'm, I'm butchering that, but I mean like even that, you know, and that's written in what, 1958, like that's fucking not on the table. Like people don't, <laughs> that's not how people understand their role on the left. Um, which again is a product, largely social media. The mediation of social media makes it sort of impossible or highly, it, it d disincentivizes people from being critical in a way that's productive and listening to criticism. I mean, and part of that mediation is simply the fact that it's text based. I mean, you're not going to, you know, the bad news is you're not going to convert anybody on the internet. Like if you do, it's going to be by accident and not intentional, you know, like, I mean, I've had people from my past who, like, I, I don't, I post whatever, like I'm not, I don't censor myself at all, you know, at, at that level of like, I better not say this because it's too radical or something. Um, I censor myself at the level of like what I think is appropriate to say or blah, blah, blah. But I definitely have had people contact me privately who like sort of are telling me they're on my side and maybe don't know what to do or whatever. And I don't really have any answers for them 
either, which is, I guess, a problem. But my point is, like, it's not because I went and didactically told them what to think. And then they thought that, you know, that's not how it works. It, like, owning people isn't the isn't the way forward. So, um, yeah, anyway, I don't know. What do you well, think? yeah, I was just going to say that and all of that sort of serves as a nice segue to, I guess, one of several different topics we were thinking of discussing, one of which was the uh, this notion that if, if the left is sort of incompetent <clears throat> at the level of technology and organizing, or if that's just a, a, a way of a strategy that's ineffective, you know, what is that signal? And does that signal something broader about the sort of and end of uh, end of the species or something like that that we were talking about off mic and a different way of organizing societies um if the left could be at the forefront of that or i didn't know if this gets us to the russell means thing you were talking about too yeah probably close to the russell means thing um okay so this is from um this is mother jones reprinted this in 2012 um so this is called I Am Not a Leader, Russell Means 1980 Mother Jones cover story. Um, so I'm going to read even the <laughs> excuse me, their little commentary about Russell Means. In a pro- provocative piece, the American Indian movement activists lashed out at European death culture and the left. Um, so editor's note, this this article originated as a controversial speech given at the Black Hills International Survival Gathering on the Pine Ridge Reservation in July 1980. A member of the Oglala Lakota tribe, Russell Means was perhaps the most outsized personality in the American Indian movement, beginning with the 1973 occupation of Wounded Knee. He also had an acting career, beginning with his role in uh, as a Chingachuk in The Last of the Mohicans. He died... Um, Monday morning, so that was in 2012 at age 72. Okay. Excuse me. The only possible opening for a statement like this is that I detest writing. The process itself epitomizes the European concept of legitimate thinking. What is written has an importance that is denied in the spoken. My culture, the Lakota culture, has an oral tradition, so I ordinarily reject writing which is one of the white world's ways of destroying the cultures of non-European peoples, the imposing of an abstraction over the spoken relationship of a people. So what you read here is not what I've written. It's what I've said and someone else has written down. I will allow this because it seems that the only way to communicate with the white world is through the dead, dry leaves of a book. I don't really care whether my words reach whites or not. They've already demonstrated through their history that they cannot hear, cannot see. They can only read, of course, there are exceptions, but the exceptions only prove the rule. I'm more concerned with American Indian people, students and others who have begun to be absorbed into the white world through universities and other institutions. But even then, it's a marginal sort of concern. It's very possible to grow into a red face with a white mind. And if that's a person's individual choice, so be it, but I have no use for them. This is part of the process of cultural genocide being waged by Europeans against American Indian peoples today. My concern is with those American Indians who choose to resist this genocide, but who may be confused as to how to proceed. You notice I use the term American Indian rather than Native American or Native Indigenous people or American American Indian when referring to my people. 
There's been some controversy about such terms, and frankly, at this point, I find it absurd. Primarily, it seems that um, that American Indian is being rejected as European in origin, which is true. But all the terms are European in origin. The only non-European way to s- is to speak of Lakota, or more precisely of o- Oglala, Brule, etc. In the Dine, the Muscogee, and the rest of the several hundred correct tribal names. There's also some confusion about the word Indian, a mistaken belief that it refers somehow to the country of India. When Columbus washed up on the beach in the Caribbean, he was not looking for a country called India. Europeans were calling that country Hindustan in 1492. Look it up on the old maps. Columbus called the tribal people he met Indio from the Italian in Dio, meaning in God. It takes a strong effort on the part of each American Indian not to become Europeanized. The strength for this effort can only come from the traditional ways, the traditional values that our elders retain. It must come from the hoop, the four directions, the relations. It cannot come from the pages of a book or a thousand books. No European can ever teach a Lakota to be Lakota, a Hopi to be Hopi. A master's degree in, quote, Indian studies or in, quote, education or in anything else cannot make a person into a human being or provide knowledge in the, into the traditional ways. It can only make you into a mental European, an outsider. I should be clear about something here because there seems to be some confusion about it. When I speak of Europeans or mental Europeans, I'm not allowing for false distinctions. I'm not saying that on the one hand there are the byproducts of a few thousand years of genocidal reactionary European intellectual development, which is bad, and on the other, there is some new revolutionary intellectual development, which is good. I'm referring here to the so-called theories of Marxism and anarchism and, quote, leftism in general. I don't believe these theories can be separated from the rest of the European intellectual tradition. It's really just the same old song. The process began much earlier. Newton, for example, quote, revolutionized physics and the so-called natural sciences by reducing the physical universe to a linear mathematical equation. Descartes did the same thing with culture. John Locke did it with politics, and Adam Smith did it with economics. Each one of these, quote, thinkers took a piece of the spirituality of human existence and converted, into a, converted it into a code and abstraction. <clears throat> They picked up where Christianity ended. They, quote, secularized Christian religion, as the, quote, scholars like to say. And in doing so, they made Europe more able and ready to act as an expansionist culture. Each of these intellectual revolutions served to abstract the European mentality even further, to remove the wonderful complexity and spirituality from the universe and replace it with a logical sequence. One, two, three, answer. This is what is... Uh, come to be termed, quote, efficiency in the European mind. Whatever is mechanical is perfect. Whatever seems to work at the moment, that is, proves the mechanical model to be the right one, is considered correct, even when it is clearly untrue. This is why, quote, truth changes so fast in the European mind. The answers which result from such a process are only stopgaps, only temporary, and must be continuously discarded in favor of new stopgaps which support the mechanical models and keep them, the models, alive. Hegel and Marx were heirs to the thinking of Newton, Descartes, Locke, and Smith. Hegel finished the process of secularizing theology, and that is put in his own terms. He secularized the religious thinking through which Europeans understood the universe. Then Marx put Hegel's philosophy 
in terms of, quote, materialism, which is to say that Marx despiritualized Hegel's work altogether. <clears throat> Again, this is Marx in Marx's own terms, and this is now seen as a future revolutionary potential of Europe. Europeans may see this as revolutionary, but American Indians see it simply as m still more of that same old European conflict between being and gaining. The intellectual roots of a new Marxist form of European imperialism lie in Marx's and his followers' links to the tradition of Newton, Hegel, and others. Being is a spiritual proposition. Gaining is a material act. Traditionally, American Indians have always attempted to be the best people they could. Part of that spiritual process was and is to give away wealth, to discard wealth in order not to gain. Material gain is an indicator of false status among traditional people, while it is, quote, proof that the system works, end quote, to Europeans. Clearly, there are two completely opposing views at issue here, and Marxism is very far over to the other side from the American Indian view. But let's look at a major implication of this. It is not merely an intellectual debate. The European materialist tradition of despiritualizing the universe is very similar to the mental process which goes into dehumanizing another person. And who seems most expert at dehumanizing other people and why? Soldiers who have seen a lot of combat learn to do this to the enemy before going back into combat. Murderers do it before going out to commit murder. Nazi SS guards did it to concentration camp inmates. Cops do it. Corporation leaders do it to the workers they send into uranium mines and steel mills. Politicians do it to everyone in sight. And what the process has in common for each group doing the dehumanizing is that it makes it all right to kill and otherwise destroy other people. One of the Christian commandments says, thou shalt not kill, at least not humans. So the trick is to mentally convert the victims into non-humans. Then you can proclaim violation of your own uh, commandment as a virtue. In terms of the despiritualization of the universe, the mental process works so that it becomes virtuous to destroy the planet. Terms like progress and development are used as cover words here. The way victory and freedom are used to justify butchery in the dehumanization process. For example, a real estate speculator may refer to, quote, developing a parcel of ground by opening a gravel quarry. Development here means total permanent destruction, with the earth removed from, with the earth itself removed. But European logic has gained a few tons of gravel, with which more land can be quote developed through the construction of roadbeds. Ultimately, the whole universe is open. In the European view, to this sort of insanity, most important here perhaps is the fact that Europeans feel no sense of loss in all this. After all, their philosophers have despiritualized reality, so there's no satisfaction for them to be gained in simply observing the wonder of a mountain or a lake or a people and being. No, satisfaction is measured in terms of gaining material, so the mountain becomes gravel and the lake becomes coolant for a factory, and the people are rounded up for processing through the indoctrination mills Euro Europeans like to call schools. But each new piece of, quote, progress ups the ante out in the real world. Take fuel for the industrial machine as an example. Little more than two centuries ago, nearly everyone used wood, a reprehensible natural item, as fuel for the very human needs of cooking and staying warm. Along came the Industrial Revolution and coal became the dominant fuel as production became the social imperative for Europe. Pollution began to become a problem in the cities and the earth was ripped open to provide coal whereas wood had always, been, always simply been gathered or harvested at no great expense to the environment. Later, oil became the major fuel, as the technology of production was perfected through a series of scientific revolutions. 
pollution increased dramatically and nobody yet knows what the environmental costs of pumping all that oil out of the ground will really be in the long run. Now there's an, quote, energy crisis and uranium is becoming the dominant fuel. Capitalists at least can be relied upon to develop uranium as fuel only at the rate at which they control good profit. That's their ethic and maybe that will buy some time. Marxists, on the other hand, can be relied upon to develop uranium fuel as rapidly as possible simply because it's the most, quote, efficient production fuel available. That's their ethic, and I fail to see where it's preferable. Like I said, Marxism is right smack in the middle of the European tradition. It's the same old song. There's a rule of thumb which can be applied here. You cannot judge the real nature of a European revolutionary doctrine based on the basis of the changes it proposes to make within the European power structure and society. You can only judge it by the effects it will have on non-European peoples. This is because every revolution in European history has served to reinforce Europe's tendencies and abilities to export destruction to other peoples, other cultures, and the environment itself. I defy anyone to point out an example where this is not true. So now we, as American Indian people are asked to believe that a, quote, new European revolutionary doctrine such as Marxism will reverse the negative effects of European history on us. European power relations are to be adjusted once again, and that's supposed to make things better for us all. But what, what does this really mean? Right now, today, we who live on Pine Ridge Reservation are living in, that white in what white society has designated a, quote, national sacrifice area. What this means is that we have a lot of uranium deposits here, and white culture, not us, needs this uranium as energy production material. The cheapest, most efficient way for industry to extract and deal with the processing of this uranium is to dump the waste byproducts right here at the digging sites, right here where we live. This waste is radioactive and will make the entire region uninhabitable forever. This is considered by industry and the white society that created this industry to be and, quote, acceptable price to pay for energy resource development. Along the way, they also plan to drain the water table under this part of the South Dakota as part of the industrial process, so the region becomes doubly uninhabitable. The same sort of thing is happening down in the land of the Navajo and Hopi, up to the land of the Northern Cheyenne and Crow and elsewhere. 30% of the coal in the West and half the uranium deposits in the U.S. have been found to lie under reservation land, so there's no way that this can be called a minor issue. We are resisting being turned into a national sacrifice area. We are resisting being turned into a national sacrifice people. The costs of this industrial process are not acceptable to us. It is genocide to dig uranium here and drain the water table. No more, no less. Now let's suppose that in our resistance to extermination, we begin to seek allies we have. Let's suppose further that we were to take revolutionary Marxism at its word, that it intends nothing less than the complete overthrow of the European capitalist order which has presented this threat to our very existence. This would seem to be a natural alliance for American Indian people to enter into. After all, as the Marxists say, it is the capitalists who set us up to be a national sacrifice. This is true as far as it goes. But, as I've tried to point out, this quote, truth is very deceptive. Revolutionary Marxism is committed to even further perpetuation and perfection of the very industrial process which is destroying us all. It offers only to, quote, redistribute the results, the money maybe, of this industrialization to a wider section of the population. It offers to take wealth from the capitalists and pass it around. But in order to do so, Marxism must maintain the industrial system. Once again, the power relations within European society will have to be altered. 
But once again, the effects upon American Indian peoples here and non-Europeans elsewhere will remain the same. This is much the same as when power was redistributed from the church to private business during the so-called bourgeois revolution. European society changed a bit, at least superficially, but its contact conduct toward non-Europeans continued as before. You can see what the American Revolution of 1776 did for American Indians. It's the same old song. Revolutionary Marxism, like industrial society in other forms, seeks to, quote, rationalize all people in relation to industry. Maximum industry, maximum production. It is a materialist doctrine that despises the American Indian spiritual tradition. Our cultures are lifeways. Marx himself called us, quote, pre-capitalist and, quote, primitive. Uh, pre-capitalist simply means that, in his view, we would eventually discover capitalism and become capitalists. We have always been economically retarded in Marxist terms. The only manner in which American Indian people could participate in a Marxist revolution would be to join the industrial system, to become factory workers, or, quote, proletarians, as Marx called them. The man was very clear about the fact that his revolution could occur only through the struggle of the proletariat, that the existence of a massive industrial system is a precondition of a successful Marxist society. Um, let's take a break here. I, this is longer than I thought it was, but sure. uh, he, he gets more into, um, like, the... I'm going to skip ahead, actually. Okay. Um, all, Marx, all European tradition, Marxism included, has conspired to defy the natural order of all things. Mother Earth has been abused, powers have been abused, and this cannot go on forever. No theory can alter that simple fact. Mother Earth will retaliate, the whole environment will retaliate, and the abusers will be eliminated. Things come full circle back to where they started. That's revolution. And that's a prophecy of my people, of the Hopi people, and of other correct peoples. American Indians have been trying to explain this to Europeans for centuries, but I said early, as, I, as I said earlier, Europeans have proven themselves unable to hear. The natural order will win out, and the offenders will die out. The way deer die when they offend, it, they offend the harmony by overpopulating a given region. It's only a matter of time until what Europeans call, quote, a major catastrophe catastrophe of global proportions end quote will occur it is the role of all natural beings to survive a part of our survival is to resist we resist not to overthrow government or to take political power but because it is natural to resist extermination to survive we don't want power over white institutions we want white institutions to disappear that's a revolution american indians are still in touch with these realities, the prophecies, the traditions of our ancestors. We learn from the elders, from nature, from the powers, and when the catastrophe is over, we American Indian peoples will still be here to inhabit the hemisphere. I don't care if it's only a handful living high in the Andes. American Indian people will survive. Harmony will be reestablished. That's a revolution. Um, so, <clears throat> I think that's enough uh, for now, but um, you know, part of why I like this so much is because I should hate this, right? Like I'm, you know, I'm a Hegelian Marxist who's, um, a nuclear power zealot, but I think like, it's almost for that very reason that this is makes so much sense because he, he's being critical of, I mean, he's being critical of a lot. He's being critical of everything. Like the paradox is he's engaging in precisely the critique of ideology and political economy that Marx, you know, um, forwards 
but he's doing it against Marx and Hegel and the Marxists themselves. And they have it coming. I mean, that's that's sort of like mm-hmm. the biggest theme on the show is that the left is a fucking disaster. It, it It's completely impotent and worthless in, in the West, in the U.S. especially. Um, and the left keeps losing. I think a big part of why the left keeps losing is precisely the issues he brings up. Same with nuclear power. Like, if the... I mean, the sad fact is that, you know, 40 years later reading this, um, nuclear power is being dismantled, but not for the reasons that he's talking about, for much more cynical and horrifically destructive reasons, i.e. selling uh, green energy as a cover to frack natural gas and, you know, exacerbate climate change until we all fucking die in a fire. And the one of the big takeaways for me, um, especially, is... The idea that, like, that part about how he was saying, like, American Indians will be here long after Marxism or um, the European society perishes and destroys itself, basically. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Like, like I'm with Zizek that, like, um, you know, alienation in a despiritualized world or a disenchanted world are a good thing, that that's productive. Um but I also think Zizek would, by and large, agree with all these criticisms of Marx and Hegel. Um, and so that may seem, again, paradoxical, but I think it's because, like, it's not the, like, the conditions for which we are arguing for communism have to be conditions under which we understand that problem, at least for Zizek, as the name communism is the name of the problem, not the solution to the problem. Um, like we are talking about bare survival here. Like things are so fucked up in such a disaster that like, cause you can fully argue. I mean, this is one of the more like comically depressing things on the left is like, there are serious arguments about whether or not China is communist. I mean, I mean, these are things like people are defending the Chinese and it's like, you know, it's, it's not a simple question sort of, but it's also fucking ridiculous. Of course, they're not communists in the way that anyone who's serious about the left should be interested in communism. There's no free speech. Um, there's no, you're not allowed to study Marx. Um, you know, they're, they're obviously, they're interning Muslim people, um, they're building ghost cities, which are obviously, you know, it, until they go full nuclear, are totally exacerbating climate change. Um, and so, in some respects, Russell Means has proven right. These, you know, Zizek's point about, like, isn't the, the worst irony of history that the former communist states are the best managers of capitalism, like China and Singapore and Vietnam. Um, yeah. And so, like, you know, I'm not... Like, I think what's what's modest about this position that Russell Means is taking is that basically he's saying, like, you can't rely on Europeans to teach Lakota people how to be Lakota. Um, and the very the sheer fact of even writing this down is already like he hates it because it's it's like antithetical to his own, like the tradition he sees is correct. And so that's what allows him to speak almost as a conservative so radically against like the entire ideological space of the West. Mm -hmm. 
and he's right. Um, he later talks about like, uh, it, I, I want to read this other part real quick. What I'm putting out here is not a racial proposition, but a cultural proposition. Those who ultimately advocate and defend the realities of European culture and its industrialism are my enemies. Those who resist it, who struggle against it, are my allies, the allies of the American Indian people. And I don't give a damn what their skin color happens to be. Caucasian is the white term for the white race. European is an outlook I oppose. The Vietnam Vietnamese communists are not exactly what you might call might consider genetic Caucasians, but they are now functioning as mental Europeans. The same hold true, holds true for Chinese communists, for Japanese capitalists or Bantu Catholics or Peter McDollar down at the Navajo Reservation or Dickie Wilson up here at Pine Ridge. There's no racism involved in this, just an acknowledgement of the mind and spirit that make up that culture. In Marxist terms, I suppose I'm a, quote, cultural nationalist. I work first with my people, the traditional Lakota people, because we hold a common worldview and share an immediate struggle. Beyond this, I work with other Ameri traditional American Indian peoples, again, because of a certain commonality in my worldview and form of struggle. Beyond that, I work with anyone who has experienced the colonial oppression of Europe and who resists its cultural and industrial totality. Obviously, this includes genetic Caucasians who struggle to resist the dominant norms of European culture. The Irish and Basques come to mind immediately, but there are many others. Um... I think right. Wait, should have read the thing before this. Oh yeah, this is what I was, wanted to say. This is right before that part. At this point, I should perhaps be very clear about another matter, one which should already be clear as a result of what I said. But confusion breeds easily these days, so I want to hammer this home. This point: when I use the term European, I'm not referring to a skin color or particular genetic structure. What I'm referring to is a mindset, a worldview that is a product of the development of European culture. People are not genetically encoded to hold this outlook. They are acculturated to hold it. The same is true for American Indians or for members of any other culture. It is possible for an American Indian to share European values, a European worldview. We have a term for these people. We call them apples. Red on the outside, genetics, and white on the inside, their values. Other groups have similar terms. Blacks have their Oreos, Hispanics have coconuts, and so on. And as I've said before, there are exceptions to the white norm, people who are white on the outside, but not white on inside. I'm not sure what terms should be applied to these other than human beings. Um, and so, like, the he's also break. he's doing the, I mean, the other paradox is he's doing the, the radical Christian thing of erasing all lines, neither mm -hmm. Jew nor Gentile, etc. Um, like, like for Paul, opposing the Jewish law was about not separating people into, um, you know, like basically chosen and not chosen mm -hmm. uh, along the lines of, you know, Christ's mandate. And so the, the event of Christ's mandate. And so like the <clears throat> again, I like what I love about this is he's using all of these. He's inverting the flow, I guess, of the understanding of what constitutes, like, the resistance to European culture, even though he's clearly, like, drawing from that culture or drawing from philosophical and religious traditions tied to that culture to make this criticism. Um, that doesn't make him hypocritical. I think it just makes him more effective. It's just a better version of he's he's sort of outdoing marxism and christianity and even mm -hmm. hegel at, at, at a political level um 
you know, again, for the same reason that uh, maybe I didn't say this yet, but like what I said off mic, like I'm beginning to come around more to an indigenous worldview as, as in terms of temporality, simply because like we can show demo- we can show demonstrably that like if the product of European uh, development is industrialization and we haven't figured out a way to use the tools of the left to stop the destruction of the climate, that means that in 200 years, you know, so supposedly the highest um, expression of European culture will have destroyed the planet. Whereas we know for sure that for at least 10,000 prior years um, and likely much, much longer, there's increasing evidence that's maybe mm-hmm. more like 50 or 100,000 years. Uh, indigenous people were living with and on the land in a way that afforded material, uh, what constitutes material abundance in terms of sustenance, mm-hmm. uh, basically without disturbing anything. Like I, I, Maybe I'll pull the article up next time, but uh, there's a, a recent article came out that like when when the when the colonists got here, what they saw as sort of like unspoiled land was actually carefully managed by native peoples. They had you know planted things in certain ways and in certain places to um, sort of allow the the land to be to cultivate itself. Um, in a way that produced material abundance again, in terms of food and stuff similar to what, like when I read that um, thing about the, the sans Koi people and in Africa and how they could just pull from the land, everything they needed and how those like Dave Matthews said, they, they were like more human than us. They're like the most human. And so, you know, I think then it's telling that Russell means is like, I don't know what to call white people who aren't white except human beings. Um, and I think this is sort of, well, I don't know enough, but I mean, it seems like the highest expression of a version of like, what is the problem with European culture? Mm-hmm. We can only articulate that problem from within that, you know, Zizek's always making that point that like the the sort of anti-colonial or indigenous critique of modernity is always at this point, always already coming from the perspective of European philosophy as a, as a sort of framework for it. Um, and again, I don't think that's a problem. I think that's a good thing. So, like, I think we need to start, as of the left, not, not like, go back to nature or some, like, hippie bullshit. That's, that's just a cop-out. But we need to start seriously challenging our own assumptions about, like, what can be done and how to get there. Because, you know, I, I can give a lot of technical arguments for the importance of nuclear power as a way to save us. And I, I stand by that because we're so further, so much further along in terms of destruction, like survival Mm. means that now period. Right. Um, but that's not, but, but that's again, running counter to the argument that he's claiming that Marxists would make about efficiency. It's not about efficiency. It's only about efficiency at the level of survival and survival is, I think he would argue a spiritual question. That seems to be his, his position. And that I agree with. So um, I think in order, you know, and this sort of like falls back to the, what I've been saying for a long time that like we've yet to the American Indian movement, the black Panther party, et cetera. That's the the furthest political horizon that we've yet reached in a, in a, you know, in within the neoliberal context. And this was written within the neo, the, in the earlier days of neoliberalism. Um, 
this is sort of like a, to me, this is like the base, you know, to, to run against, against the grain of his own reading of code. Like this is the sort of source code for what we probably need to figure out. Um, and what does working with nature actually mean? Or nature is sort of a problem. Nature as a concept is a romanticized, problematic European uh, notion to begin with. So I don't, I'm, I'm not endorsing it, but I'm saying like, as it's commonly understood, like how do we, how do we engage with the biosphere in a way that um, helps us, that, that stops us from destroying it. And you know, my, my previous position here, I think is the same thing that we should understand climate change is the technology that we've built. Um, and that until we start understanding it as like, no matter what we do, we're going to change the environment as humans. That's just what it is now. We're, we're past the point where that's not, you know, you can't walk that back. So the question is, do we engineer that technology, meaning all of human civilization in a way that oh, away from destruction or toward to continue toward destruction? And I think that's what he's what Russell means would be arguing, too. That's definitely what was happening before the Europeans got here, that the, the you know, the indigenous populations had already engineered the environment in a way that was sort of balanced itself. Um, and we destroyed that on purpose, like the. You know, that was one of those famous quotes about, like, why did they have the Europeans kill all the buffalo? Because the quote from, you know, whatever American general, like, because that is, that's the Indians' canteen. You know, that's their mm -hmm. food source. Um, you wipe out their food source, they can't survive. It's biological warfare. Okay, so those, again, that's an environmental land management choice masked as um, genocide. And it's both things, but I'm saying, like, I think the other thing I'm saying is like you, you can't the other thing we need to break with is sort of the distinction between like what constitutes war, what constitutes um, economic policy, what constitutes environmental policy. These are not separate questions. They never have been not not in not until we colonize every planet. It, we're able to colonize any planet and there's just literally limitless resources. Um Climate change is biological warfare. You know, they, they talk always about climate change is racist. Well, yeah, of course it is, but it's warfare. Like the, and I think this is why for me, returning to some of these critiques of colonialism is very useful because our thinking about this is just so close minded on the left. Like we're, we're constantly trying to check all these boxes and it's like, they're not separate. We've accepted the terms of the game as presented to us by capitalism. And that's what the fundamental thing that Russell means is criticizing here. Um, that's who we need to be taking our cues from people who have been successful at at least mm -hmm. beginning resistance movements, even if they were, you know, were outmaneuvered or just crushed by, you know, other means. Yeah, I know. That's all I was going to say, too, is that that critique of colonialism, it has to, you know, it's, it has to come from folks who are who don't look like I do. Right. Who are Black Panthers or Russell Means or otherwise. And uh, for the reasons you're saying, and there's nothing I could add to what Russell Means said or what you've described uh, that sort of describes or articulates any of this any better. I mean, it's, it's all been said other than to sort of agree with it by way of an anecdote. And so um, the critiques here are you know, Hegel, Marx, and the sort of enlightenment uh, philosophies that emerged from that, the European enlightenment philosophies. Um, he doesn't talk about sort of contemporary 
thank her so much, but I'm thinking he's saying this in 1980, right? As, uh, and you and I were talking off mic about this project I have ongoing with Michel Foucault uh, and uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy and so on, but he's, Russell Means is making this statement right at the time uh, that Foucault was making his biopolitics, uh, you know, lectures. He's giving those lectures and making those sort of, those neoliberal, ultimately neoliberal arguments um, in his sort of project to, he's trying to critique Enlightenment as well as a European coming out of the Hegelian Marxist Nietzschean tradition or whatever, but he's trying to tear all that stuff apart. But as we see, the end result still is a tacit endorsement of neoliberal capitalism, and it sort of even bolsters it. And so even the folks you know coming out of that tradition, uh, philosophers and thinkers who are trying to do that criticism of that, um, the, the Marx, the Hegel, it just didn't work. And in fact, it went the opposite direction in a horrifying way, as we see now. And that's why I'm agreeing with everything means uh, said right and it, it has to come from someone with that perspective which i just i don't have because we've seen nothing but failure from the other way right which is maybe the same question like i i also like to that end maybe um i, I mean i don't know if it needs to come from there but it's it's not sure. coming from anywhere else so you know it's sort of like yeah, i'll take it that's fair um but <clears throat> like you could maybe say zizek's making similar arguments but he's he's coming from the balkans which is sort of another Con, you know, like sacrifice zone in a different way. Sure. Um, but like just to that end of like, you know, what constitutes like, I mean, we're at sort of a comic level with this because everything's so fucking right wing now where the resistance means, you know, you, you vote for fucking Joe Biden. Like, right. like it's, abs it's truly absurd. Uh, this is, I'll just read someone's status that they just posted. So we're recording this like during the, vice presidential debate which i'll watch later begrudgingly but this is someone's uh status did kamala just say biden will not ban fracking did i hear that right so you have someone who claims you know again even chomsky who's you know chomsky himself i hate to say it had now has trump derangement syndrome he's saying this is the most progressive platform in the history of the democratic party well during the debate with trump Biden said, I don't support the Green New Deal. And then Trump's like, oh, wow, that's a big statement. You just lost the left, which is right, um, at least ideologically. So now Kamala's saying, you know, Biden will not ban fracking. I think Biden himself has said that in the past as well. Um, and I mean, this should be disgusting to people and disappointing, of course, but not surprising at all. Like this is the this is the game that we're playing. And the left choose myself included chooses to engage in this, you know, for materialist reasons, i.e. seems in, in terms of ideology, it seems to be where people's focus is. So that's what we try to do. It obviously doesn't work like we, we're going to have to fully reject this entire version of politics. We are still right. it's, it's Zizek's, you know, and Badu's old, you know, beating the drum for like the 20th century is over. Like, yeah. What I said to you initially when we started talking off mic was somehow I think what we're going to have to do is begin to embrace madness as like our way out, you know, for madness from the perspective of the system. Like I was watching yeah. before I got here, the first episode of the Ethan Hawke show about John Brown, the uh, radical abolitionist who... Mm -hmm. um, 
it's really interesting to watch because he's fucking crazy. Like he's out of his mind at every level. He's got this gang of misfits who this sort of there's like a black kid who's um slave kid who's like a narrator of the, the show and he's like you know, I've never seen a this is like the sorriest group of guys I've ever seen in my entire life. Um and they're going around like killing people who support slavery, cutting their fucking heads off in uh, bleeding Kansas in the, you know, right before the civil war breaks out. And Ethan Hawke plays John Brown, like, you know, as crazy as you can fucking get, but it's funny too. Like it's sort of, there's some, it, I would say that the genre of this show would be like action comedy, um, like uh, J- Django Unchained or something like that. Um, or a, a wonderful movie that came out this year called the hunt, which I highly recommend. Um, Anyway, uh, where Betty Giplin just is just fucking unbelievable. You've seen her in Glow, but she's even like she's ten times stronger in this. But in the Hunt, but <clears throat> um. Anyway, John Brown, like he's as he's like hunting down these slavers and stuff, the slave owners. Um, he's grounding everything in this religious, this reading of the Bible that's very um, radical and fucking crazy. Um. But he's also right. Like he, they're about to kill this guy, and the guy's like, because it, it, apparently in Kansas they would, they would give poor white people land in exchange for voting the way they were told to vote, um, you know, twice a year. And uh, he, they've they've um, invaded this guy's house and taken him outside, and they're gonna kill him because he won't denounce slavery. And, uh, he's like, I'm just trying to feed my family. I'm just trying to grow whatever. He's like, and then he's like, really? So you weren't one of those. He's like, I heard you ravaged some women in Lawrence. And he's like, it wasn't me. I didn't. He's like, you were with him though. Weren't you? He's like, I was in Lawrence, but I didn't have nothing to do with it. And then, uh, John Brown, one of John Brown's sons is like, I don't think this guy, you know, I don't think we need to do this. And he's like, John Brown, like, gets his you know the fire in his belly and he's basically saying like he's like if if two men broke into your house broke into our house and kidnapped and raped and killed your sister what would you want to do to him would you would you let him go or would you uh would you take their eyes out and you know like murder him on the spot and he kind of like has to begrudgingly agree and then they fucking kill this guy now I'm not saying that's like the solution, but he's saying, and and he was also like forcing his son to agree. Like, he's like, are the Negroes our equals? Are they our brother brethren? If that's true, then why wouldn't we do the same thing that we would do to white people who did the same thing or, um, did if, if white people did the same thing to whites that we knew and cared about, why wouldn't we do the same thing for Negroes who've been attacked in the same way? Um, and so there's there's a sort of there's a revolutionary logic to it um but the 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 craziest part of this to me and I think this is the 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 true radical edge is he seems absolutely insane their their party is being hunted by across Kansas by all these people that he's you know are trying to get revenge for what John Brown and his crew did but and Brown explicitly says, we are trying to start a war. And 
we know from our perspective that he was right and it worked and it ended slavery. Mm-hmm. So who's to say that he was wrong at any level? How could perhaps he needed to be crazy in order to see the world in the in the right way in order to change things fundamentally? Um all of these things are part and parcel. Like in order to truly reject like a, a European worldview, um it is it is incumbent upon us to reject the rules of the game as presented by that European right. worldview. Yeah. That's not an easy task. I mean that that's the real message of, you know, like in They Live where like that when Zizek's like, why does the fight take so long when he's trying to get him to put on the glasses? It almost seems insane, but it's because right. he to to um, disabuse yourself of ideology is violent process. Mm-hmm. Um, to see to you know to to look at things the way that they are, there's a violence involved in that, and I think you know at least early on, like the stage is being set for it with John Brown, though ultimately his his quest was seemed, you know, quixotic or whatever. Um, he ended up on the right side of history in the end. And the point of everything isn't to end up on the right side of the history of history. The point is to identify an ethical framework from which to act such that survival becomes possible. Um, you know, the stakes of the Civil War, depending on how cynically one reads it or from what brand of materialism you come at it from, there was at least a question about servitude, a question about chattel. Now, were the economic conditions and political conditions such that it was it was better move for Lincoln to side with um, the abolitionists? Perhaps, but that didn't come about organically. That had to be forced into being. And John Brown was probably a larger part of that than anyone realizes. So risking madness is perhaps the only way forward. Because if you just read what Russell Means wrote, you know, as measured and and clear as it is, um, it seems fucking insane and stupid from the European perspective. But that doesn't mean he's wrong. It just means we're wrong. The... Uh... Absolutely. The I was going to say by way of another example, um, you mentioned the vice presidential debate, and I saw a kind of a smug social media post uh, earlier, not about this debate, but some uh, someone who I assume is liberal. I don't know if I call him leftist, uh, him or her, but I'm saying something like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, Biden sucks, but I'd rather I'd rather take my chances with the corporate, you know, capitalist party than the white supremacist uh, fascist regime." Right? Okay, fine, um, but. I mean, without getting, and maybe there's an attempt to critique Joe Biden in that, but I don't think so. Uh, the the question seems to be, again, that self-important move to say, be strategic and uh, w- without recognizing, though, that both are worse. That Zizek quote you've used before, that it's, uh, they're, uh, they're both worse and the outcome is going to be the same. If you don't do that radical thing, if you're not a crazy person like John Brown to say this entire system is 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 dead right it's done for we need to just dispense with it as quickly as possible literally or the civilization's over with right and i mean we don't have to I, i'll take like a, just a moment to game out what i think someone asked me about this who's not american they're like you know sort of like well why isn't biden 
better, you know, and they weren't even disagreeing with me. They just wanted to know what I thought. And I, I had to point out that like, if, if the projections are true and it's possible or even likely that the Democrats win the house, the Senate and the presidency, we know what happened last time. Was there any movement on the environment, the economy, or healthcare? No, everything got more right wing with under when Obama's first two years in office. And when I say that with healthcare, that's because not that I need to criticize Obamacare. Everybody who has to deal with it knows it's a fucking nightmare and it further destroyed the economy. Obama deregulated Wall Street, got us into more wars, um, gave us a right wing healthcare plan. No, it made the student debt laws worse. Uh, for borrowers and just literally crushed everyone. And so that's exactly what's going to happen if, if, if the Democrats sweep in November. Um, because the left will go to fucking sleep again. For sure. All of this Trump rage will go away. And then what are you going to have? You're going to have, then, then you're going to have a right wing that is so inflamed and the Q people are just going to go completely apeshit. I mean, you get a civil war. That's why the war gamers say that's, if Trump decides not to leave office, that we get a civil war. Um, okay. The only, now, what, what do you get if the how Democrats win the House? Not the Senate and Trump gets reelected. Same gridlock. Nothing happens. Things get infinitely worse just, just by way of inertia and, you know, some act of corruption. The only way I see for anything to get better in terms of in the very near term is if the Democrats win the House and the Senate and Trump gets reelected. Mm-hmm. Then Trump will have to play ball because he'll have no fucking cards left. All he will have is Twitter. And so he'll have to sign shit. Now he might say crazier and crazier shit. And try to mobilize his base, but it's not going to matter because the Democrats will have the purse strings and they're going to have control over the just the judges. So um, now that doesn't mean anything good will happen on its own. We'll still need to be massively mobilized and we'll have to start attacking the Democrats even harder. And who knows if that'll happen. But the fire that Trump brings into the political sphere will be required for anything to move at that level. And so like. Mm-hmm. Which that might seem ma- like madness that I'm saying that, but I mean, for the same reason, like you have to stop playing this game on the terms that they're claimed to be, where there's this sort of like opposition and negotiation and stuff. This very white way of thinking, white liberal bourgeois way of thinking. It doesn't fucking work. You got to be ruthless. Um, and I'm not saying electoral politics is like the site of all ruthlessness, but uh, uh, certainly not that that's where things will change, but in terms of the very near term, these things have material effects that are extremely violent because, you know, for the same reason, if the civil war kicks off, then all this shit is moot, which means the, the, the 40 years since Russell means gave that speech, all of the compromises and bullshit that went on that whole time that led us further and further to the right, uh, will have been for nothing. It will have all led us there. And so, um, you know, again, Russell Means here is the the real materialist insofar as like he's reading the thing. Like he said, I mean, he says it over and over again, like indigenous people are concerned with reality outside of like this, you know, European model of uh, progress. Um, and we're going to we are already living in the climate collapse. So that will just be exacerbated um, if Biden wins. And if he doesn't win. 
it's still on us to like um fight this as, as best we can and the only way we can fight it anymore is madness asymmetrical like we can't we can't try to negotiate with these people anymore it's not going to work i mean even the rioting didn't work in terms of material progress at least not yet so um i think people are going to have to get used to a brand new reality and in unless we have a perspective like russell means is outlying we won't be able we'll, we will be we will be handcuffed um, and unable to respond.